Good morning, Exchange. Hope you are well. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 today. Uh, thank you, Whitney, for coming and uh, helping Jesse out this morning. I'm 98% sure she was not scheduled to sing this morning. Confirmed. Confirmed. Yeah. And did it incredibly well. I saw Jesse in soundcheck make a phone call, and I'm like, I think he's calling him the reinforcements, you know? So uh, thank you for helping us out. Uh, this morning and next time don't scream so loud at Brooks's jiu-jitsu matches I wouldn't be able to do it either hey uh, if you're new with us or you've been here for a few weeks uh, this is a perfect time to just uh, kind of uh, take a pause reset and look at where we've been and where we're going uh, we're in a series called welcome to church and it's I think a, a very uh, important what we would call corner post in the life of exchange. We're coming up on 10 years uh, as a church, and I think it's really important uh, that, you know, in that 10 years, if you think about it, uh, that's 10 years of swimming upstream together in a culture who desperately wants to destroy the church. And so it's really, really, really important for us to uh, focus in and often reevaluate what is it about church that we really believe, that we're committed to, that's so important that it doesn't matter what culture has to say to us and for us and about us. These things are the things that we stake our life and our faith on, and we believe in so much we have to uh, pay very close attention I think it's not just like every other community uh, that we're a part of or organization, family, neighborhood. Uh, so much about um, this series is helping us, what we would say, realign our thoughts about the church. I think the elders started to look at this and pray about this probably about a year ago. And I think it's good for us to look back in even the past three weeks to see where we've been. We've been talking about uh, four different commitments and so far, we've talked about three of those. And in the next uh, 10 weeks, we're going to deal with uh, the commitments of exchange. But I want to review for us, just to catch us up, uh, we've dealt with three commitments that are very, very important. Uh, God's commitment to the church, the leader's commitment to the church, and actually the church's commitment to the church. Let me review a few of the things. On God's commitment to the church, I think this is really important Ed mentioned this as he preached this sermon, but I think it goes uh, a long way to say this. If we're going to be committed to this thing, we better hope and pray that God is too. That this is actually his plan for his mission to accomplish his goal, spreading the gospel throughout the nations. And so if we're committed to this thing, it's really important for us to know what God's commitment to these, this thing is. And, and Ed talked about four things. They're not exclusive. They're not exhaustive. Uh, but these are four places that we wanted to key in on. One, that he's committed to the diversity of parts. He emphasizes the value of each one of us. Let me let that sink in. God is committed to the diversity of parts emphasizing the value in us all. It, it means that every one of us in this room are equally important. They were equally important in, in this church, in this family, in this community. He's committed to our growth. He's committed to using us as part of something bigger than us, and he's committed to putting himself on display through us. 
Those are really important commitments that God makes in scripture about the church. Next, uh, the leader's commitment to the church. We talked about this, that pastors must be committed to prayer and study of scripture. And I did want to clarify this too. We, we kind of talked around it a little bit on this sermon. We believe that the words pastor and elder are, are um, synonymous. We believe our elders, our elder team, uh, there's seven actually of us, two, two of us or are on uh, sabbatical, uh, rotated off. We believe that we use those terms synonymously. When we say an elder here at Exchange, we also mean pastor. And so pastors must be committed to prayer and study of scripture. Pastors must be committed to equip the church for the work of the ministry. And pastors must be committed to feed the church with theology through scripture. It's what we do here on Sundays and studies, small groups. Pastors have to be committed to feed the flock that is among them. And then the church's commitments. We talked about this last week, that the church must be committed to radical forgiveness, not just, not just uh, past and not just individually, but corporately. I think this goes um, without saying, I, I don't know, maybe we should say it. I'll, I'll say it. I think we're really good at extending grace in the past and forgiveness in the past. We look at stories all throughout scripture. We see Abraham who literally almost sold his wife into slavery to the king of Egypt twice. He's the father of her faith, right? Like Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses, Esther, Ruth, like every single person in scripture, we can look back on and see that their lives were, were not completely perfect. And you know what we do? We extend them grace. They weren't perfect, but we look to their faith, as Hebrews tells us, as those who have gone before us as examples of our faith. You know why that's easy for us to do many times? Because their stories were 2,000 years ago, and Uriah was not our brother. But the Bible doesn't just cause us to look at past believers in the past church and say, yeah, yeah, we'll extend them grace. No, even more so, the scripture causes us to extend grace to one another. Present grace, future grace, real grace. We have to be committed to radical forgiveness. The church has to be committed to encouraging one another in the faith. The church must be committed to speaking to and about each other differently. We're going to talk a lot about this um, in future sermons. I, I think this is really important, and I think this is, that is the way that the enemy wants to destroy us. And the church must be committed to praying for one another. So these are the things that we have to know and understand about the church, why it makes sense. If God uh, has chosen this vehicle to accomplish his mission, then it's really important that we get it right. It's important to know that if, if we're committed to this, then he is as well. And it's really important to know that those who lead the church aren't committed to just growing a thing, but actually loving people. And it's really important to know that when we are gonna be a part of a community of people that radically treat each other different, it's because that's what God calls us to do. And there's something deeper than just a relationship or a geographic location that we choose to be a part of. We believe that this is a community that he has made us a part of. So those are the first three commitments that we've talked about. And now we shift in the sermon series and we're talking about what it means to be committed to exchange. 
We've talked about this a little bit that, that over the past 10 years, we as, as exchange members, as exchange family, there are 11 membership commitments. Everyone who's ever been a member at Exchange has gone through this membership class. We've talked about these, and uh, I'm also sure that none of us can recite all 11. I can't. And so as we started to look at this, we said, let's simplify these things. Let's reduce these things into the the least common denominators in, in a way that we're able to know and understand, actually pursue and hold each other accountable to. So I'll say it this way, there's nothing new. There's five membership commitments that we're retooling. There's nothing new in these five membership commitments, right? This is not a way for us to sneak something else in. This is not something for us to just say, oh, we're completely changing doctrine, approach, beliefs. We're not even sneaking in a commitment that you have to bring us cookies at Christmas. Although if you wanted to, 207 North Main Street is our office, okay? There's nothing new. These are all ways that we have taken the 11 things, the 11 membership commitments, and we said, here, let's reduce them to five, and then let's realign ourselves around these things to say, this is what it means to be a family member at exchange. We have to be committed to this. And so at the end of this this series, we're going to preach two sermons on each commitment, each membership commitment. And at the end of the series, we're going to invite you to reaffirm your membership at Exchange with these five membership commitments in mind. And of course, we've got plenty of opportunities to talk and to have conversation about that. Uh, We've got open forums with the elders. We had our first this week. That was really great. Uh, We got to spend a lot of great time together talking about different questions. We'll have a few more of those, but also we want to make ourselves available at any time. Most of you have my cell phone number. If you don't, I would love to give it to you after the service. You can reach me also at brian at exchangenc.org with any questions or email all of our elders at once at elders at exchangenc.org. We would love to talk with you about these questions. The first commitment we're going to talk to about today and next week is something that we say, I commit to pursue community and embrace accountability at exchange. We've got five of these. I'm going to give you a roadmap really quick, and then we're going to come back to this. The second as I, is I commit to submit to the care, correction, and protection of the leadership at exchange. I commit to protecting the unity and health of exchange. I commit to sharing my time, resources, and gifts towards the mission of exchange. And I commit to engaging my circles as a full-time minister. So we're going to do two weeks on each commitment. And we have, uh, as I said, more times to discuss. It's more than just a sermon. We've got great ideas for you to engage in this with us. But we're launching from Hebrews chapter 10 today, talking about this commitment to pursue community at exchange. A commitment to pursue community at exchange. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 24. And what we're going to do, we're going to do something a little bit different. I believe the writer of Hebrews got this right. He makes this case a really, really great case for where we end up. But what we're going to do today is we're going to start in verse 24, and we're going to work our way back up uh, to about verse 10. Okay, so verse 24, he says this, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. 
Let us consider, think about, be intentional how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you will see the day drawing near. So there's this forward-facing instruction here that's, that's built around intentionality. The instruction is for the church to face outward towards each other, looking for someone, considering someone, being intentional with someone. So I think this is so countercultural to the society that we typically live in. We're entitled and demanding, and we want to make sure that we're acknowledged. But not only that, there's this deadly combination uh, mixed with isolation and a strong current that pulls us there. And the expectation oftentimes is that there would be a longing to encourage uh, others in the faith, to build them up, to care for them. I wonder so often what Paul may say to someone who says, I'm not connected. I wonder what Paul's remedy for that, that symptom may be. It's something that we often hear in the church community, in the church world. And he might ask you, who are you attempting to connect to? So many times we we view this as something that has to happen to me rather than something that I pursue and go after, that I embrace and that I seek, I relentlessly look for. Who are you pursuing? Who are you mentoring? Who are you pouring out into? It sets the stage for an entirely different conversation, I believe. And here's the first thing I want you to see. Pursuing community prevents isolation and disconnectedness. Pursuing community prevents us from being isolated and disconnected. I'm not saying that that is always the reason. I'm not saying that this is, it's never uh, the, the church's fault or someone else in your circle that should have reached out, that should have done something. But what I'm saying is that when we are pursuing community, it helps prevent isolation and disconnectedness because we're taking it uh, with our lives, with our purpose, with our intentionality. And we're saying there's somebody in this room that needs me. There's somebody in this room that needs uh, whatever the Lord has poured out into me. Jim Davis and and Michael Graham uh, just released a book called The Great Unchurching. They're two pastors that serve together in the Orlando area. And and they say that the research shows for in their area uh, that uh, in the past 25 years, 42% of the church uh, has stopped attending church. 42% of people in that community, in that area, have stopped altogether uh, attending church. And they write this, we're living in the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history. Some 40 million adult Americans who used to go to church at least once per month now attend less than once a year. So they worked really closely with uh, uh, two social scientists uh, Ryan Burge and Paul DeJope uh, to conduct the largest and most comprehensive study of the de-churched ever commissioned uh, so far. They heard from more than 7,000 respondents in three phases. And the research uh, it gathered interest from New York Times, uh, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, a lot more. So what did they learn? People aren't leaving the church for the reasons we may guess. It's not church hurt. It's not disappointment. People are leaving the church, get this, because of a life change. 
They stopped going to church. These 7,000 people, over three quarters of them when asked, why don't you go to church anymore? They, they named these. The inconvenience of attending. Kids' sports activities. Family changes like marriage, divorce, or having a new child. I think social media has been blasting churches and I think especially pastors for how we're harmful. Yet it turns out that the majority of people don't come to church because, uh, because of church hurt. The majority of people who aren't coming to church aren't coming to church simply because they don't want to. Because we don't value it as something that's extremely important in our lives, something that we desperately need, something that we look to to say, you know what, God has placed something inside of me that the community that I give my life to needs me. There's something wrong when we can be gone for weeks and weeks and weeks and never think, I wonder if God has strategically placed me in this community for a reason. Typically what the enemy does is he turns it around on us and he says, I wonder if anybody noticed that I'm gone today. See how subtle that is? He takes these unmet expectations and weaponizes them against us to create this delusionment against the church. I think we all have moments where we felt disconnected or maybe that we're not part of the team. I hope that's not true here. Can I encourage you that when you have those feelings of, if, I wonder if anyone noticed I was here. I wonder if anyone noticed that I wasn't here today. You, you turn that around and try to think of someone that needs to hear from you. The enemy is so clever. Take the weapon out of his hand. What would exchange be like if we committed together that we are a people to commit to pursuing each other? I like to say it like this. Arrows out, arrows out. Ed's going to speak next week on some practical ways on how we can do this. But I'm gonna remind you of, of, of one example that we typically talk about when we expect guests and other people coming in. We, we, we say, give, give up your stuff. So at Easter and Christmas, we often say, start in the parking lot and give up your space. Park in the very back, as far back as you can get and give someone else your space. Then when you come into this place, give someone your seat, the seat that everybody wants, like the outside back, right? Give up your seat, scoot up, scoot in. Give up your seat, make someone else more comfortable. And then probably the third and most important thing is give someone your name. Look across the room and say, is there somebody here that I don't know? It doesn't matter if they had been here longer than you. It doesn't matter if, if you've seen them for weeks and weeks and weeks and now it's awkward because it's like, I should know them, but I don't. We have kids that attend the same class together. I still don't know their name. Just go up to them and say, man, I'm sorry, but I'd love to, to try to remember this week. I'd love to know your name. Tell me about your story. Try to look around for someone you don't know and introduce yourself. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they've been here long. It doesn't matter if this is their first week. Give them your name. Now, Jesus said this in, in John chapter 15, verse 12. He said, this is my commandment. I love this, that you love one another. And I love how he puts an example in this. And he says this, just as I have loved 
you. Love each other in the way, and Jesus says this, and I think the disciples clearly know and understand what it is to be loved by Jesus, pursued wholeheartedly, like attention right on you. I love the story of Zacchaeus, right? Like we know the story and Jesus is passing by and he calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus, I want to hang out with you. I want to pursue a relationship with you. And Jesus is constantly pushing on us. And he says, this is my commandment that you love one another in this way, where you have your, your face outward, your arrows out looking for someone who desperately needs you. The second, there's an element on how to do this. Go back to verse 24 and he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Here's the thing, pursuing community requires intentionality. Pursuing community requires intentionality. Did you notice the passage here? He says, let us consider how. Before we're ever pursuing community, there's this thought, intentionality, there's this forethought about how do I actually do this? What do I need to do? How do I speak to someone? How do I pursue them? This shouldn't surprise us. Everything else in our life that matters takes intentionality. We work and plan for things like being the pretend football coach of a pretend football team. I mean, we scheme about this for weeks. I'm in a league. It's fun. But I don't want to put more time into a pretend thing than what matters most. I don't, I don't want to, to stand before God one day and say, man, your, your 2023 team, in crazy. How did you ever do that? Well, I studied the stats for a while, Lord, you know. Hey, during that season, did you ever did you ever think about the person sitting across the room? Did you put thought into how do I reach them? How do I how do I make them a part of this team? How do I put thought into to the people that, that matter most in my life? Everything we do in life that's worthwhile takes intentionality. It doesn't happen easy. From, the, from our relationships, our work, the trajectory of life, retirement plans, everything we do takes planning. And for some reason, we, we just have taken church and we've said, it just happens, right? Like, I mean, we make connections with the people we make connections with. Maybe, maybe they're just, you know, they're kind of like me. Maybe they have kids the same age. Maybe they're in the same stage of life. It just happens. Rather, I think scripture would not affirm this. Rather, he would say, we all matter, every different part. And he says, let us consider how to. You know why? Because sometimes it doesn't come easy. If it came easy, we wouldn't have to consider how. We wouldn't have to plan. We wouldn't have forethought. We wouldn't need intentionality. It would just happen. I hope that we've all felt that at some point in our lives. Whether maybe it's a handwritten note, a call just to say hello, a walk across the room to say, I was hoping I would see you today. But listen to this. When we're busy thinking about others, it's really 
really hard, if not impossible, to think about ourselves. When we've turned the arrows out instead of in, it's really hard to be discouraged about someone who didn't walk across the room to say hello to you when you have not walked across the room to say hello to them. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter two, verse one through five. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in love, if there's any fellowship in the spirit, if there's any compassion, make my joy complete by being in the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the spirit, intent on the same purpose. Here's what we want to push him. And do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Arrows out. Arrows out. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Arrows out. Have this attitude, it goes back which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus saying, love others the way that I've loved you. Paul saying, love others the way that Jesus has loved you. Arrows out, arrows out. I want you to notice something. I, I think sometimes in scripture, we see moral, what, what we would call moral commands. And, and we see these as overarching principles, rules, God's law over our lives. And we see Sometimes the benefit of these things, right? Don't murder, don't steal, commit adultery. A lot of the things that we would, I mean, just inherently say, yeah, those are part of God's law. Did you, do you know that these instructions are not suggestions? When God says to love others in a way that he has loved us, consider others more important than you, arrows out. This is, this is not a suggestion. This is a command from scripture to say arrows out. This is, it's a command in scripture. Somehow, some way the enemy turns it around on us and as hard and fast as we try to face outward, he, he puts this mirror in front of us and he says, what about you? What about you? What about you? What about you? And that's when we take it from his hand and you say, it's not about me. Put others above yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition with humility like Jesus. Hold others more important. Pursue them. Make time for them. Love them. Listen to them. Feed them. Jesus did all of these things. Each week for our, uh, each commitment, we're going to do a couple of challenges. I'm really excited about these, uh, mostly because I thought of them. Um, I'm kidding. Our elders uh, is a whole collective thing. But each week for each commitment, we're gonna put out challenges to the family to say like, how can we pursue these things? These commitments, what we don't believe uh, is anybody in the room, including me or any other elder, that we could hold up these five things and say, we're perfect in all of these things. We're complete in them. We've reached the pinnacle of success here. No, these things are what we would say, we're committed to these things. And so we have to constantly pursue them, right? So one of the challenges is uh, that, that we're gonna issue, I'm giving you a head start. You can start thinking about it now. Uh, it will put it on paper later this week or next week after Ed's done. One of the challenges is this, intentionally, let us consider intentionally how. 
Here's the challenge. Look at your yearly calendar and schedule one night every quarter. One night every quarter. Every three months, you're scheduling one night. You've put it on the calendar. Unless there's an emergency, it doesn't get moved. And you say, we're having someone from exchange over this night to our house. We are intentionally pursuing them. We're asking them. And here's the fun part. When you have those four nights on your calendar, you get to make your way down the membership list and say, I don't care how many people say I can't do it that night. We're having dinner at my house and someone from exchange is going to come. I mean, this could be easy. Uh, reach out to one of our single members at Exchange. That's setting one more plate at your table. Maybe you have kids in the same class. You want to know who they are, who your kid's hanging out with, who the kid that's teaching all your kid the bad stuff is, right? Like, I want to get a handle on this right now. That's okay. Motivation, right? Let us consider how to do that. Have an elder over. Most of us are great. I'm joking. I'm joking. All of us are great. We're, we're going to issue this challenge. Would you consider, would you consider marking off four nights out of 2024 and saying these four nights are dedicated to pursuing community? What, what would that look like? If all of exchange accepted that challenge and said, man, we're, we're going to host someone in our home four times this year. I think some of those other commitments towards unity would become so much easier because we're committed to pursuing one another. Now the writer here is clear that the longer the world continues to spin out of control without the full redemption at the return of Jesus, the need for community is even more so. He says this, even more as the day draws near. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another towards good deeds, not forsaking uh, the assembly as in the habit of some, but even more as the day draws near. He, what, what the writer is saying is, is as, as this world continues to spin without the full redemption of Christ, we will need each other even more so. Did you know, this is what the writer is saying, we need the church desperately more this week than we did last week. You understand this? We desperately need each other more this week than we did last week, desperately more this year than we did last year. So I want to back up to verse 19. Watch what he says. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Same sentence, verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Same sentence. 
This, this is not like new thought. This is continuation of, he says this, because Christ has given us himself as our permanent sacrifice, because we have the privilege and opportunity to bring everything to him, because we need to hold on to Jesus, we have to encourage one another in that, he says. Here's what I want you to know. Biblical community is necessary for victorious faith. Biblical community is necessary for victorious faith. This is the context in which the writer is pushing us to. He said to cling on to Jesus in this way that he's given himself for us, it will require even more so as the day draws near, community of believers encouraging one another to Christ. He says we'll be tempted to turn to everything else in life. We'll be tempted to place our hope and our trust in all of these different things except Jesus. And so if we're going to do this successfully, he says, you have to have community. I think there's this really absurd truth that Paul's asking us to grab onto, that Jesus has become our great high priest forever through his death and that we have the ability to draw near to him with full assurance. So he's saying you have to hold fast to this. You need people in your life constantly when you seem to be getting a little bit out of line that just steer you right back. And I think the writer here is saying you desperately need this. Uh, one, one thing, so uh, Levi, our second son, um, he had started playing guitar. He normally is back on drums. He's our uh, long-haired hippie of the family. He turns 13 this week. And um, we did something for him this weekend that, that I did for Brody when Brody turned 13, and we call it a man party. Call it a man party. Uh, there's, there's nobody, no teenagers allowed, no, no peers allowed, only men. And I asked them to come and we, we have a feast that night and, and I asked them to write a letter, handwrite a letter about the aspect of manhood, biblical manhood. And they challenge him to this aspect. And here's the incredible thing. You might be able to say, oh man, that's awesome. I bet that's possible. By the way, we had 12, 12 guys, 12 men give up their Friday night to come speak to this 13 year old young man. You might be thinking, oh, oh, that happens because you're the pastor. There's so many relationships. Not true. He invited them. He made the guest list. A 13-year-old made the guest list. And if a 13-year-old in the church community can have 12 guys that he looks up to and invites into a room to challenge him on biblical manhood, if a 13-year-old can have that kind of community, you can too. You can too. It's not out of reach. It's not impossible. If a 13-year-old can do it, so can you. It's the pursuit. Who do I want to be around? Who do I want to be with? Who do I look up to? Who am I just squirreling my way into their life? If a third, listen to me, maybe it hasn't happened yet for you. 
Maybe the enemy's speaking all kinds of lies to you even right now. It's, well, of course, a 13-year-old can, but you can't because, right? Those are lies. Those are lies. If a 13-year-old can surround himself with men who love Jesus and want to pour into him, so can you. So can you. I want to say that other point, biblical community is necessary for victorious faith in a, in a different way. Biblical community helps us hold on to Jesus when holding on to Jesus is hard. Biblical community helps us hold on to Jesus when holding on to Jesus is hard. There are moments in life where nothing can prepare you. Nothing can prepare you. And we need people to protect us, to steer us, to guide us, to know us, care for us, to love us. And that happens when we have pursued relationships with them. Love one of the aspects, uh, it, all, all of these things were incredible. Um, I asked each, each guy to come with kind of a token about their, their letter, you know, it could be anything. And, and one, of, one of Levi's guys brought him a poncho. He says, you know, Jesus said rain's coming. Rain's coming. That's whether you build your house on the sand or on the rock, but rain's coming. He says, so when you look at this poncho, think about the protection that you have surrounded here. Love that. Somebody brought him a, a sharpening stone. Said all of these guys around you are, are sharpened, like a tool to sharpen you. A compass. You always have to have your, your, your mind on true north and anchor. Be steadfast. And there's all these lessons, but all of these truths that say we need each other desperately. But in the first part of that, verse 19, so we need each other because holding on to Jesus is sometimes difficult. Verse 19 starts with a therefore. Like the whole thought isn't completed yet. Whenever there's a therefore, right? It's therefore a reason, right? So let's go back. He says this in, in verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So verse 14 then, if you can go back. So we're gonna go back to verse 14. And here's the therefore. For by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws upon their hearts and on their mind, I will write them. And then he says, is there a better verse in scripture than this? And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no Let that sink in for a second. To those who came in this morning with shame and guilt, 
and burden and despair. Shackled to the enemy. I, I want you to key on these words. And their sins I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, because he's wiped our sins away, because he has declared, I'll remember your sins no more. Because of this promise, therefore, we have this confidence to enter into the presence of Jesus by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way in which he inaugurated for us through the veil. It's not through these sacrifices. It's not that we would earn our atonement or come and do all these things. It's that he has granted us forgiveness. That is his flesh. And since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, well, that's the confession of our hope. Jesus has said he will remember our sins no more. And let us consider then, same sentence, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Biblical community protects our faith and flows out of the gospel. Because we have been made a people who were not a people, we talked about this last week, all of us in this room, desperate for mercy, drinking from the fountain of God's great grace and love. We are a people now, desperately in need of each other to help stir and steer us in the right direction. We have to have each other. We have to have each other. And for some of us, the enemy is, is constantly trying to chip away at this. He's chipping away at, at, at what we view as the church. He's chipping away at how we think someone else thinks about us or how they didn't say hello or how they didn't invite or that they didn't pursue. And I think scripture's pushing us back around to say, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to consider how other people left you out. I'm asking you to consider how you can stir someone on so that you can love someone, how you can push them to good deeds and how you can help them hold on to the truth of the gospel. That is that their sins will be removed remembered no more. That's what I'm asking you to do. And I think exchange, if we commit to this, the walls against the enemy as the day draws near will be so much stronger. Why do we need it? Because we desperately need to remember that Christ is sufficient for us. And that's what we get to celebrate today. 
And we remember today through an ordinance called the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave us this on the night that he was betrayed. And with his disciples, he sat down at the, at the table and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's spilt for you. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. This motivates biblical community. This motivates our lives, our, what we give our hearts to. This motivates biblical community as we remember him. We try to do this often when we talk about the Lord's table uh, in that scripture says it's something that we would enter into carefully and honestly. That we would not be withholding uh, sin in our hearts, holding on to that, and then entering into this worship that remembers Christ's death on the cross for us. In a, in a way, Scripture says it, it's, it's like blasphemy. It's like spitting in the face of Jesus as he's on the cross. I'd, I'd like your forgiveness, but I'd love my sin to stay even more. Now, this isn't for perfect people. If it were, we, it would actually just be empty underneath the, the plate and the cups. This is for, for those who say, Jesus, I'm trying with all my heart. I'm trying with all of my heart. Interestingly enough, Scripture also commands that if we have something against our brother, that we would go and get that right first. There's a link here even to community. So when we practice the Lord's Supper, when we do this, we, we often give you not just a license, an invitation to pause and to say, you know what? I, I'd rather work a couple of things out. I'd rather have some time for repentance, for confession, to invite people to come around me and pray with me as scripture has indicated by the one and others. I'd rather work some of those things out before I do this. And that is fine actually encouraged. But those of us who, who think and respond and reflect and say, God, as far as I know, I'm, I'm, I'm right before you. I'm not holding on to any sin. I'm not trying to, to, to hold on to this while reaching for you as well. This is in a moment where we get to remember his great sacrifice for us that places us in this beautiful community full of broken people that we desperately need. So as Jesse plays, we'll, we'll take um, together today as we celebrate community. But I'm going to ask Jesse to play for just a second. And then I'm, as he does that, I'm going to just ask for a time of reflection. And I'm going to ask maybe that you reflect on a couple of things. One, God, would you help me face outward? Would you help me face outward? There may be a confession with that too that says, God, would you forgive me of facing inward? Would you forgive me of being self, so self-focused that I'm, that I'm looking inward so much? I, I never even considered how I can stimulate each other, one another. I never even considered how to push someone else closer to you. 
Would you forgive me? And then I think there moves to this personal response of God, I desperately want to do things your way because of the sacrifice that you made for me. I'd invite you into the time of reflection for that as Jesse prays. We'll, we'll have a time of reflection, then we'll open the tables up and we'll take together. Lord, would you speak to us now? Would you challenge us now? Would you even move in our hearts in a way that maybe could be even uncomfortable in ways we didn't expect? Jesus, I pray that you would speak through your spirit. Make us a people, Jesus. Make us a people. ready, I would invite you to come to the table, gather your elements, um, and then take those back to your seat and we will take together.
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, in this, we declare your death that was good enough for the sacrifice of all of our sin. Once and for all, the atonement that causes you to say, I will remember their sins no more. So Jesus, we as a church declare this truth. We, Jesus, as a people, Remember you. Corporately together, God, we say we desperately need you. Lord, would you use us, each one, to hold desperately onto this truth that your body and your blood broken for us is good enough. It's good enough. So Jesus, we do this in remembrance of you. Take and eat and drink.